Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic. This week, Smarty Pants is on vacation, and I thought I would share a little bit of my destination with you with one of my favorite episodes, which is connected to where I'm going. If you can correctly guess the destination, and it won't be difficult, just shoot me an email with your mailing address to podcast at theamericanscholar.org, and I'll pop some stickers in the mail for you. I'll be back with all new conversations on September 16th. Imagine there was a place where music still existed as it might have been invented thousands and thousands of years ago as spiritual healing, as the glue that held a community together across oceans and continents. Well, that place still exists, in a little pocket of northwestern Greece on the border with Albania. It's called Ipros, and there, today, they still practice a folk music tradition reaching back all the way before Homer. In his new book, Lament from Ipros, the obsessive record collector and Grammy-winning producer and musicologist Christopher King goes on an odyssey to uncover Europe's oldest surviving folk music, using, of course, a trail of RPM records. And I went on an odyssey myself through the wilds of Virginia, not quite as isolated as Ypres, and spoke to Christopher King in his studio, where most of his extensive collection of 78s lives, Two quick notes before we start. There was another listener in the room, Chris's dog, Betty, whose collar you can hear jingling a bit during the interview, so please excuse her enthusiasm for the music. Also, if you have big headphones or a sweet speaker setup, this would be the episode to save until you can listen on those. We will be hearing a bunch of songs this episode in their entirety, and I would hate for you to miss a single note. So... Without further ado, thank you so much for sharing these records and stories with us, Chris. You're welcome, Stephanie. So to start, I mean, how did you fall in love with operatic music? And I mean, how do you even find this obscure strand of folk music? Well, uh, it all happened when I, when I uh, went to uh, Istanbul with my wife and daughter. Um, and we um, happened to go across to the Asian side of Istanbul and I found a stack of old 78s and without the ability to listen to them they looked curious because they were so well played I figured somebody had uh, played them to death for a reason and so when I returned back to the United States and after I cleaned them up um, and listened to them they put me in kind of a, a deep trance and they they sounded both alien, unlike anything I'd ever heard, yet intimately familiar, just like the string bands and uh, American blues music that I had been listening to 20 years prior. Wow. Would you mind playing us one of the very first recordings you heard, so we can get a sense of it? Yeah, this is uh, Stroto Pogonicio by uh, Kitsos Harisiades. It means uh, smooth dance from Pagoni. Thank you. 
That would have been the kind of tune that would have been sort of the slow dance hypnotic piece that would have been played for 45 minutes for a dance uh, in that region. And at that time period, the people would have been primarily poor and largely Roma that would have been both the dancers as well as the musicians. So when you first put that record on back in the States, you didn't know all that, I would imagine. (laughs) So what was your next step going forward? I mean, you hear this, you're entranced. Well, I mean, I guess I'm naturally an obsessive person. So when I encounter something that I greatly like and that I find irresistible, my impulse is to get more and more. And because I'm a collector, it's easy for me to act on that impulse. So I just started um, contacting collectors in Greece and in Europe and in America and slowly and surely built the biggest collection of this music from northwestern Greece that there is. So one of the things that you write in the book is that unlike pretty much every other folk music out there, this one is still alive in a lot of quarters. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing which is shocking about this, which I did not know, and I did not know until nearly two years into collecting the material, was that w- if you go there to Iparos, to Pagoni, or to Zagori region, or around Ioannina, the music still not only exists largely unchanged, but more importantly, the function of the music within the social context is also, too, largely unchanged. I mean, people attend the Paniyiri, the calendrical religious events which have music and feasting. Uh, They attend them because it's traditional, but when they actually engage with the music, they're engaging with the music in a fashion not dissimilar from what their grandparents or great-grandparents would have done uh, at the turn of the last century. Uh, It's not the case that it's exclusively preserved only in Ypres. You can still find uh, in the islands and especially on the island of Crete, um, kind of a steadfast resistance towards cultural assimilation, sort of rejection of globalism, uh, which is a double-edged sword, of course. But I, I think that by basically not trusting the outside world and its ways and its movement towards westernization and industrialization, that they've kind of elevated these um, this cultural wealth that they have, um, and I think that's why, for the, for the most part, it still maintains its integrity in those regions. It, it, it is disintegrating in certain places, and it's certainly not pure. It's not unchanged, but it is certainly less unchanged than it is in other regions of the Balkans, and especially in Greece. So you spoke earlier of the way that this music functions in society, like its role. Um, what is that? What does music serve to do in these little communities? Well, I mean, it often depends upon who you ask and the age of the person that you ask, but there is a consensus that forms that music there serves largely a therapeutic, uh, almost a medicinal role, that when you engage in the dance, and particularly when you engage with the musicians, um, there is an exchange, there's this transference of music to the listener that acts as a catharsis or as an emotional release that in in many ways both mentally and physically heals the dancer heals the listener and and I'll hear that from a variety of folk and it is the case that it is so right right musicians will play into the listeners you write like at these festivals and yeah. celebrations um can you talk about that relationship a little bit more yeah i mean i i've i've only ever been to one 
electrified rock concert in my life and I'm 46 years old and I'm an American. They were on a stage and they were separated from the audience by, I don't know, 20 yards or so and they had smoke machines and huge amplifiers. And so it was by and large uh, an experience where the audience was distinctly separated from the musicians. But in Iparos, particularly in the smaller villages, uh, not only is there no barrier between the audience, say the dancers or the listeners and the musicians, but the goal is to actually be as intimately uh, connected to the musicians as one can. So in many instances, uh, there'll be like a two inch space between the musicians and the dancers and the, da- and the musicians will often walk around in the midst of the dancers in the little circles. And in the case of the larger villages where it involves large circle dancing around the musicians once again you might have three or four hundred people forming a uh, uh, sort of concentric circles around the musicians but at no time is there some sort of artificial space between the musicians and the dancers and the listeners you spoke to a lot of musicians too i mean the the men whose records were playing on around anymore but later generations are and you did talk to many of them I mean, how do they see themselves as musicians, as doctors, healers? Yeah, actually, uh, actually, uh, uh, a Roma musician, uh, Yanis Haldupas, uh, who lives in Pagoni, uh, in Paracalamos, uh, he was very frank. He sees himself as a doctor and less as a musician because when he looks out at the villagers, he's trying to read what it is they need. And so he gauges his playing based on what he thinks they need. So he's kind of a musical physician. <laughs> So, I mean, speaking of healing, one of the common ailments, spiritually at least, that seems to afflict these communities is exile, absence, this longing for the homeland from those who have left it. What's that relationship between that exile community and Ypres like? And I mean, that relationship with the music itself. Right. Well, the, the concept, which is a Greek concept uh, in general, but it's a specifically deeply felt concept in Ypres, is one called uh, xenetia, which is the experience of being estranged, of not being able to be on one's home soil. And so often through the history of that region, uh, people, particularly men, had to leave in order to make money to send back to their family there. And quite often those people moved to Europe, United States, Australia. But those that had the, um, the ability to do so almost always came back at least once a year for the Panigiri in order to basically relax for a month and be with their family and to engage in the uh, dances and the music and also by extension to have children. Um, so, uh, the, the, concept itself, although you can, you can detect that it's felt by nearly every Greek when a family member has to leave and go abroad to work, it's acutely felt there in the villages of Northern Greece because the populations are just so low. Most of the time of the year, there might be 20 or 30 people in a village, but then during the height of the summer, there'll be, uh, 800 or a thousand. So one of the musicians who I think most embodies that spirit of longing, at least, I mean, it gave the title to your book anyway, is um, Alexis Zumbas. Could you play us the uh, Lament from Epiros? Sure, sure. Just give me a second to pull it out.
It's really hard to follow that up with a question, but I'll go ahead and ask what, what do you hear when you hear that song? Well, I mean, I, I, what I hear is a universal panacea for all of our woes. I mean, I hear something which was articulated uh, thousands, if thousands, if not tens of thousands of years ago as a way of us um, migrating through the world and addressing our pains, both our emotional pains as well as our communal pains. Because that was a mere loy, that was a lament, and originally it would have been sung over the grave of someone newly deceased, and you can read in Homer, Miloya being sung uh, for those that have fallen during the war. So it's something which is deeply knit up with not only ancient Greek history, but I would conjecture it goes much further than that. You know, when we, when we, when the, uh, when the last ice age started to, uh, to allow us to um, build and become what we have now become, it, I think, was one of our first expressions, one of our first musical expressions. It was a way of us um, treating ourselves medicinally. So this was, if I'm not mistaken, this was the song that sort of set you off the deep end. Like once you got to this song, it was sort of you had to find out as much as you could about this form of music. So, I mean, what what happened next in your research process? What when did you go back? When did you go to Greece? Yeah, I mean, it, it ain't much of a research process. It was more. It was more of I wanted to. Um, <laughs> I wanted to find out where this music uh, was sourced. I had no idea when I went there that it would still be this vital living thing. I thought that that was just hyperbole that was given to me by people that said that music there was unchanged. But to me, the the main reason for going there to Greece that first time was to see what landscape had informed this music of Alexis Zumbas due to its intensity, its its unfathomable consequences when I heard it. So um, that's when we planned our first trip to go to Greece. And that's basically when I guess I fell down that that horrible expression, the, the rabbit hole. Um, I mean, a lot of your book is about more than the music. It's about sort of the social context that you need, you say, to understand this music, to understand any kind of folk music. So what is the context when you got there? What did you learn about the landscape, about the people, about, you know, the culture that informed and deepened your understanding? Well, I mean, the, the the landscape, to to my understanding, is harsh. It's 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 desolate. It's sparsely populated. It doesn't really grow things very well, and it's mountainous. And the people there, uh, the the original people that lived there, tended to be rather isolated from the rest of the world. What I did perceive when I first went to. Um, and then every trip that I've made back there and also to the other more isolated areas of the Balkans is that music, at least in the mind of the people there, and I happen to agree with them and I think it works, is that music is not thought of as simply a commodity or as a mode of uh, entertainment, but rather as a, a tool for survival. It would be the same thing as having a, a medical kit with you, you know, when when you needed it, uh, this is what music was for. It helped you get through these long periods of isolation. So I think when I got there, I realized that music within this sort of insular perception of things um, was at its, at its most primal level a tool for survival. After this, Chris will be back to tell us how the experience of these Roma musicians was actually really similar to that of Black musicians in the United States. And he'll tell us what their music has in common. Stick with us.
So Alexis Zumbas, as well as Kitsas Harusiadas, whom you played earlier, were Roma, as were and are a lot of musicians from Epirus. Can you expand a little on the Roma community in Greece? Because one of the interesting things in your book is this comparison you make between the Roma tradition of music and Black American traditions of music, especially the Delta Blues. Right. Well, I mean, I guess when you when you reach any sophisticated culture, which I guess is implied by the fact that we have cities and towns, uh, there is always going to be an established hierarchy made between the highest rung and the lowest rung. And in Ipros, the lowest rung would have been the Roma. And in the 1920s, 1930s, uh, Jim Crow South, um, the the uh, the 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 black uh, Americans uh, in the Delta, uh, especially, would have been at the lowest rung. You know, working on uh, plantations, sharecropping, that type of thing. So. Uh, in, within this within this context of being under the underdog, I guess as Charles Mingus would have put it, uh, you have this you have this sense of um, pride that you put in your music, and that music tends to serve as a really strong cultural um, asset that's shared by all the members at that level of the community. So with the Rama, they perfected their art so that they were indispensable to the higher echelons of Greek society in the villages. They needed them to perform this kind of music because they were the best at doing that. And likewise, in the American South, particularly in the Delta, the best people at playing the blues happened to be those black musicians that had perfected their skills. I mean, I hate to go straight to another downer, but can we hear the comparison for ourselves? Can you put on a, a track that you think compares to Miralai? Uh, yeah, well, I, I, it's not from the Delta, but I can play Blind Willie Johnson's uh, uh, Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground, uh, which, besides having this emotional feeling that is very similar to that of Amir Loy, it actually has musical similarities, which are uh, 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 profoundly revealing. But I'll play that for you now. Mm-hmm. 
not the typical blues blues that you would hear like in a blues bar um but i guess because i'd listened to that record hundreds of times and then and then i encountered this music from ypres the similarity came into stark resolution immediately it's pentatonic and it's the same structure the same keynote it's just the motifs and the embellishments are rearranged for different ears so i mean my next question because this music seems so different from anything I've heard before and comes from such a, a different place physically and spiritually compared to a pop song or a piano concerto. I mean, how do you learn to listen to this music as a musician? How do you learn to play it? Well, I mean, it, you did not learn from sheet music, but rather you learned by way of ear. And so you were taught a, a handful of scales but then what you did with them was basically you interpreting not only your emotions through those scales, but also the emotions which you wish to elicit from those listening. And so the method which Kitsos would have used and the methods that other musicians to this very day use leans much more heavily upon uh, expression, uh, the nuancing of a given note rather than trying to interpret how a piece of music ought to go in a particular scalar fashion. Right, or you could be like Kitsos Horusiadas and teach your students from the opposite side of a gorge. I mean, how did that work? It's in the small village of Klimatia, and so uh, Kitsos would have sat on one side of the, of the ravine. The student or the docent would have sat on the other side, the docent would not have been able to see the fingers of Kitsos on the clarinet, but rather he would have only heard the tone. And so how he learned to play would have been by mimicking those tones that Kitsos would have been playing. And then over time, he would have been able to place his own touch on that tune by repeated over and over again and sourcing those inner emotions. So do you think that kind of teaching method and that kind of relationship between student and teacher, the listener and the player is key to the, I guess, the emotional range of epirotic music? I wouldn't say emotional range. I would say the musical biosphere mm -hmm. because all three elements are necessary. You have, you have the music, which is, is something which is anticipated. You have the musicians, which Frankly, they come in all shapes and sizes, carrying a vast array of emotions ranging from dark to light. And then you have the interchange of the listeners, the dancers, the, the, the village. 
all three of those elements must be in some sort of kind of a perfect harmony for the magic to work. And frankly, it does. So are you worried that the magic is going to stop working? I mean, one of the questions that you asked a lot of the people you visited was, are you worried about this way of life, this this folk music disappearing? Do you fear for it? Yeah, of course. I, f- I fear for anything changing or degrading or disappearing. Um, when I would talk to my friends there, you know, they 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 seemed to all have a faith that the music was not going to change. But at the same time, there there was this this um, acknowledgement that things progress and things do change, and that as Greece becomes more and more modern, even in those isolated pockets such as uh, Ipiros and Crete, uh, it, it it is going to change. It is going to degrade, and so I, I think maybe maybe one unintended consequence of my writing and I guess of my prolonged engagement with this music is that I can't save it. I can't preserve it, but possibly maybe I can show to, to those that are very interested that by valuing this cultural asset, they themselves can maintain it, can keep it, can keep it from degrading and changing and disappearing. We've got links on our episode page to Christopher King's book, Lament from Ipiros, a gorgeous slideshow of R. Crumb's original illustrations for the book, and links to places where you can find Chris's collections of eparotic songs, painstakingly transferred from all those 78s and given evocative titles like Five Days Married and Other Laments, Why the Mountains Are Black, and, of course, Alexis Zumbas's A Lament from Ipiros. But... We are not going to end this episode on a downer like, will eparotic music ever survive? No, I would never let that happen. Can you send us out, I guess, on a light note? Can you play a dance a dance tune? Light. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll play a skados. I'll play a skados. It's a hypnotic tune that's used to uh, mesmerize sheep and to make them... Uh, take water or to take shelter or to lay down that was its original function and then it became modified and it became this um, this actual dance piece in Ipros Thank <laughs> you.